Today's episode of Vernacular is part two of our collaboration with the Center for Public Justice. The Center for Public Justice, or CPJ, is an independent, nonpartisan organization devoted to policy research and civic education. Working outside the familiar categories of right and left, conservative and liberal, CPJ seeks to help citizens and public office holders achieve justice. Last year, CPJ launched the Families Valued Initiative, a project that promotes organizational and public policies that better support family life and respect the family responsibilities of all workers. In this collaboration between the Vernacular Podcast Network and the Center for Public Justice, we're teaming up with the people behind the Families Valued Initiative to talk about the struggles that modern families face and to learn how we can better support families through private enterprise, charitable initiatives, and public policy. Supporting today's families is a bipartisan imperative. According to 2018 data from the U.S. Census Bureau, Americans are waiting longer than ever to get married, yet delaying marriage has done nothing to drive down divorce rates. Marriage rates have declined over the past three decades, while divorce rates have steadily risen. And while marriage faces challenges of permanence, married couples are having fewer children. In a 2013 survey by Pew, only 49% of people listed having kids as a main reason for getting married. A summer 2018 Pew survey found that 71% of parents under 50 described themselves as not likely to have kids or more kids. And yet, despite these symptoms of pressure, today's families overwhelmingly describe family as the primary source of meaning in their life. In a 2017 survey, 69% of adults listed family as a source of meaning in their life, more than double the amount of the next highest answer, career. This is why it's important for us to find ways to support families. We shouldn't have an economy that makes it necessary for 82% of parents to work outside of the home. We shouldn't have to fight for paid parental leave at a majority of private companies. And we shouldn't make quality healthcare a luxury that parents can't afford for their children. We need churches, employers, community organizations, courts, and legislatures to support the family at all stages of life. And that's why we're happy to announce this collaboration with CPJ's Families Valued Initiative. For more information or to join the discussion, reach out to us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com, head to vernacularpodcast.com, or visit familiesvalued.org. Enjoy the show. All right, joining us on this episode of Vernacular is Rachel Anderson, who is the director of the Families Valued Project at the Center for Public Justice. Rachel's work focuses on work and family policy. Previously, she served as the director of faith affairs at the Center for Responsible Lending. She's a graduate of Harvard Law and Divinity Schools and the parent of two young children. She lives uh, with her husband and family outside of D.C. Rachel, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. Good to be here. We had a great conversation with Chelsea last week talking about uh, some of the challenges, unique challenges facing families today. And I thought that we could talk to you about the sources of stress. We just talked very briefly with Chelsea at the end of last week's episode about some of those stress sources. But what I really want to talk about with you is the shift away from household economies, uh, paying certain attention to the very unreasonable expectations that women face in today's economy, trying to have it all. Um, and I think there are many, many things that we can touch on in this conversation, but maybe to start, the, the Time to Flourish report that your team at Families Value put out with the Center for Public Justice, it talks about the shift away from household-based economies. So can you talk a little bit about what a household-based economy is and how our post-industrial globalized economy hurts it? So I'll start by sharing my grandparents' family uh, story. Um, my my uh, paternal grandfather inherited a family farm and northern um, Wisconsin, and for his first um, 40, 45 years of his life and the first half of his marriage, um, worked that dairy farm. And so uh, his life at that time was what would have been typical for many Americans um, generations ago, which is that he and his 
um, wife, my grandmother were engaged in that common enterprise of, um, you know, of livestock and um, growing their own food, canning that food, kind of um, taking care of my mom. And so that was, that was their, both their household and their day-to-day life and also their um, livelihood. Um, he was able to do that late into the 60s, but um, for most Americans, um, uh, we experienced a mass shift from agriculture and small home-based industry um, into kind of an industrial economy and now a post-industrial and information economy um, many generations ago. And so what that means is um, fewer households have that opportunity um, to to have a, a household in which everyone's participating in some way um, in the livelihood. And instead it means uh, one or more members are, you know, the work for them is outside the home. So, uh, you know, sometimes in manufacturing, sometimes in office work. Um, the reason we started some of that story about family time stress with that shift out of a, um, out of kind of a home-based economy. And I want to be clear that that has certainly never been true for all households. Um, is that we see um, kind of with drawing work out of the home, uh, you know, new pressures on family life and family cohesion. I can't help but think of Lauren Gold's Wilder and Pa in that. Have you read that book? Um, probably not uh, all of our yeah. listeners have, but um, I just yeah. think that he's like a great example of a household-based economy and how he and Ma work together to make the, the, the family run and the house run, but everything's based and centered around the home, even though he goes out to go, you know, hunt and bring back the food. Right, yeah. In general, it's all about keeping the household running. Right. And so certainly that's an idealized and a particular version of that Um that kind of economy and that kind of household. Um, but when historians look at that, uh, you know, there are some who say that that a home-based economy enabled a relative um, equality between members of a household and certainly an interdependence between productive and caregiving work um, and even afforded a degree of synchronization in time. So, uh, you know, I think about my grandparents, they worked very hard and long hours um, uh, but that work for both of them was sort of uh, affected by the same cycles, the length of the day, the season of the year. Um, and so in that way, there were, there were ways their time uh, together was shaped by the same set of forces. Um, but that's less true in a lot of households today. Um, you may have one parent who has a, you know, working evening shifts in retail and another is preparing lesson plans for a day of school or someone is, uh, you know, an office worker nine to five, and another one is constantly responding to email requests from their boss or their client. And so every member of the household may be responding to some very different pressures, um, work-based pressures, and find it harder and harder to kind of bring their time and their efforts together. So as I understand, one of your arguments in this report that you've authored, Time to Flourish, It sounds like you are suggesting that one of the key drivers of stress for today's families is that we have shifted from this household-based economy, or maybe maybe we could call it a family-based economy, to instead an economy-driven family, so that the the family as a basic unit of economic activity is no longer determining the direction of its members, but rather is responding almost exclusively to external pressures that are driven by the larger market forces of the economy. Do I have that? understood correctly? 
Uh, yes, in very broad terms. I, I think that's a trend that we're paying attention to and, and thinking about just the additional pressure that places on family life and family togetherness. So can we talk a little bit more about those specific pressures? I think you mentioned a few of them already. You mentioned, you know, working a working a nine-to-five job or, or just having shift work, I think, uh, also of mm-hmm. unpaid leave and few options for uh, new uh, parental leave, poor mm-hmm. benefits, lots of, lots of health insurance gaps, for example, in the employment of many people today, poor policies in place for employment protection if you're injured on the job. Um, lots of those those things apply to low-wage jobs. Uh, it's probably less apparent how uh, white-collar or high-wage workers face unique stresses today, but I think they also do. So can you talk a little bit more about some of the specific stresses that we see manifested in workers' day in the economy and those stresses that then have trickle-down effects into the family? Sure. Um, I think that attenuating pressures exist for, bo- for both blue-collar and white-collar families, uh, families in a variety of jobs. Um, We spent uh, a lot of time looking at the um, impacts on uh, working-class families, in part because um, working-class and certainly lower-wage families have fewer resources and fewer buffers with which to um, shore up their family time. And so they are maybe more likely in a situation of uh, needing to substitute work for family care. Um, I just want to raise one story of a woman that we talked to um, named Jane, who is a call center worker and found that after giving birth to her second child, um, she needed to go back to work in just a few weeks, um, realizing that if she didn't do that, she wouldn't have enough money to pay for her electric bill. Um, But white collar workers, as you mentioned, um, do find themselves also kind of um, affected by these attenuating forces. One may be, uh, use the word workism now, um, the tendency to locate your identity in your work. And that can lead to, you know, working excessive hours and working in ways that um, one's time is almost entirely shaped by the demands of, of work. Right. Um, as you know, there are highly competitive tracks um, uh, in certain careers. And so, for example, in professional service firms, there may be a real demand for responsiveness to clients or higher-ups nearly around the clock. Interesting, just uh, recently, a, a prominent law firm based on the West Coast has been facing claims from, I think now, eight female attorneys about um, pregnancy discrimination and parental discrimination. So these women found that uh, they returned to work after having a child and received um, kind of without, you know, without basis in their work performance, received declining performance reviews or probationary measures or were being denied um, some of the work that they had previously performed. Um, And those kinds of patterns in the workforce can send the signal that if you haven't placed work at the very top of your priority list, um, you won't be able to succeed in a particular career. And those are the kind of practices that really can devalue um, family uh, and, you know, kind of lead us to think of of family care as uh, a deviation from the norm rather than just a simple function of our being human. Definitely. I'm optimistic on some of these issues because I do think there is a conversation being driven by some younger businesses that that move away from the all-consuming demands of work that you were just talking about. 
Um, so some of the, I think, professional services firms that you mentioned are more uh, more older entrenched industries. And I think there are some mm-hmm. young companies, I'm thinking of, of some in Silicon Valley who have really tried to make it a key part of their uh, their human relations identity that they give generous time off or they, you know, they mandate sort of phone off disconnected time. And I'm not sure how much yeah. of that is genuine versus just sort of for the sake of PR, but I do at least think that in either case, it's it's indicative of the fact that more people are recognizing this as a problem and more people are realizing that the more time they're always on and glued to their work, the less of a good person they can be for the people who are closest to them, um, around them and their family specifically. And so I'm really, I'm optimistic yeah. about that. I think, yeah. I think that your, your guys, um, project at Families Valued is really well timed because we are, we're, we're long overdue for these conversations, but I think they're starting to happen. And I think you guys are doing a really good job in sort of leading the way on some of those conversations. A different topic, though, I want to pivot a little bit. Your report also mentions the increasing number of households in which both parents are working outside of the home. And this is, of course, a shift from from the historical trend that you guys talked about in household-based economies where both parents would work inside the home. Um, so we went from both parents working inside the home to one parent working outside the home. And now, in in many cases, both parents working outside the home. And that certainly has ripple-down effects or, or trickle-down effects for the family. But I think it also affects the broader economy. So can you talk a little bit more about the effect that that has had? Certainly. Uh, so with um, especially since the 60s and 70s, uh, a greater number of women have had the opportunity to bring their gifts into the workplace. Um, and so that is, on one hand, um, I think, been a benefit to workplaces, to the economy, um, and to women um, who've been able to do that. It also has been a shift in the balance of the home. So a couple things to think about. Um, certainly there are folks who think of that, think of the two-income um, process is almost like a trap, right, where the standards of living increase um, for and kind of the economic expectations increased in ways that um, folks almost feel uh, obligated to keep up with two incomes. Um, some households need two incomes in order to make a decent living um, for their kids and for each other. And um, and interestingly, as that's happened, um, especially in recent years, the amount of parental involvement kind of overall, when we look sociologically, um, has actually increased. And so um, we're seeing more and more parents um, across class, kind of across all categories, feeling the need to um, uh, to spend you know, a great deal of time with their kids. And that's really a good thing. Um, but I think it means overall level of stress. Um, on parents and working parents can be pretty significant. Right. Because if you're working your eight hour job and then you come home and want to pack in all that time with your kids, um, that, that, right. can be, that can be hard to do and pretty exhausting. Right. Right. And so great, you know, uh, families feel like all of their time is tapped out and, and maybe what gets uh, uh, left behind is, is that piece of rest, is the piece of Sabbath that we also right. need alongside work, alongside caregiving. Well, I think there's that dual pressure on parents then to be both a full-time or a, a kind of give their, their all with 100% to their job and then also to their family and to be a superstar in both areas. Um, I think women in particular fall prey to that, 
that uh, pressure because they're expected to to have it all and do it all. And Zach alluded to this a few minutes ago, but we're in the midst of this long overdue conversation about women in society and how they've been consistently devalued and mistreated. But now we're we're trying to change that. Um, but how how do you think our discussions of family stresses inform the way we value women women's contributions in particular to both the workplace and the home? So when we kind of go back to that initial historical conversation about the home-based economy and uh, and then the move into the Industrial Revolution, um, what some historians say is in that shift of kind of pulling um, some work out of the home, uh, let's say into the factory or into the office, it came to be that that was the work that was called work. And the work of the home, the work of caregiving, the work of um, this kind of domestic care and the, and the rituals of family life began to be uh, kind of almost ignored and no longer understood as work. And so I think what we're seeing now is the opportunity to revalue that and embrace both both parts, the caregiving work, the household work, and kind of productive work, all as work and all as critical to our family life and just to our being human. I, I think you're absolutely right. And part of it, I think, does need to revolve around what work actually means um you know the the stay-at-home mom who spends all day with her children and in the home is not doing work and i would actually suggest that that is some of the hardest work that's out there and so it's very strange to think of that that woman as being unemployed if she's working full-time in the home uh in a in a in what is essentially a home economy and so I think a lot of our labor terminology around these things is very bankrupt. I think even the, the way that we talk about work-life balance is bankrupt because it implies that there is your work and then there's your life. And this is something that we've talked about on the mm-hmm. podcast before, but that's just simply not the case. And I think the highest degree of satisfaction in your professional workplace environment and in your home will come when when there's a, a certain synergy between the two of those that, that um, you recognize that really all of it is a part of this work that we do as humankind. And it may be the place where you're formerly employed or maybe the place in your home, but but work is is a is a thing that I think needs to be fundamentally redefined. Absolutely. And this is I guess that leads into my final question. And I don't want to spill too much into the topic for next uh, the next episode and the final episode in this series that we're doing with the Center for Public Justice. But I do want to ask you, how do you think we can start to restore work to its proper place? You've talked about it a little bit already, sort of redefining mm-hmm. the terminology or reconceptualizing what work is. But how else can we restore work to where work should be and, and try to alleviate some of that stress on the family? So I think there are two big principles um, or big steps that um, that I've been thinking about and we're thinking about the Center for Public Justice. Uh, the first is to reclaim um, an understanding of Sabbath. Uh, we think that uh, in the Christian tradition um, that God um, did work for six days in creating um, the earth and humanity and then rested. We think that's significant and it signals um, some of the cycles that uh, are knit into creation and, uh, and maybe healthy for people to pursue. And so in kind of just honoring that, what, you know, thinking a bit about what is, what's our work and honoring the work of caregiving as well as, and then setting a limit to it, <laughs> setting a time for rest um, that can make both more healthy um, in much more concrete terms. You know, we're interested in uh, just how do we need to protect some of the time that, um, 
uh, that people need. And some of that is for us and some of that is for caregiving. And, and so we're worried about those um, uh, those times when caregiving, even critical moments like the time after a child's birth is, is kind of forced to give way to um, work in the marketplace. And so we're interested in, in those kind of policies like paid family leave that can ensure that one, we're valuing the work of, of family care um, and ensuring that it's protected for, for all households and all families. I really like that. I like your, your two-pronged approach of one, embracing a reconceptualization of rest and two, attacking the problem via policy. I think both of those are necessary and we'll talk about more of those in detail on this, on, on the third installment of this collaboration that we're doing. Um, and I think on the point about your, or your point about the recovering the Sabbath, I'm not sure if you read Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture, but I think there's a lot to be recovered there that that leisure and our understanding of leisure and how it, it should be integrated into our lives can form the basis of a very healthy culture, but we need to recover it first. So I think you're really onto something. I look forward to exploring some more of these ideas in our next installment. And I want to thank you so much, Rachel, for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you. For our listeners, if you want to follow more of Rachel's work, definitely go to familiesvalue.org. There you can read more about what Rachel, who's the director of the project, and her team are doing there. You can read the report that we are discussing, and uh, you can follow Rachel on Twitter at Rachel Hope And until next time, for Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Oh,